Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And I'm still sick. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the raspy voice podcast <laughs> this week. It's it's not even a podcast anymore. It's just ASMR of me breathing into the mic with a oh. cold. <laughs> So soothing, so soothing. So soothing. <laughs> <laughs> but Brenna, we are not alone. We have a special guest to help us make our way through the Golden Compass. There's someone else in here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in your computer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're joined by Heather Sear. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am, this is my first podcast and I am really excited. Oh, we are so excited to have you, if only because Brenna said that we could gang up on you because <laughs> you are a big fan of this property. I am a big fan of this property. I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> Don't be scared. But Joe and I were a little bit, um, we struggled a bit, I think, this week with this. So it's actually in the weeks where we struggle with a long text like this, it's really helpful to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about <laughs> to talk with us. Yeah, it's like bringing balance to the force. So listeners, Heather is a friend and a friend of the show. Um, Heather is also uh, an English professor and a children's lit expert who has thought seriously about this series. So it will be a huge asset to have you here, Heather. Oh, see, now I'm even more daunted. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, But before we dig into the Golden Compass, I suppose we should do our homework. Joe, Mm -hmm. did you do any homework this week? I'm going to crib off of Twitter. So shout out to friend of the show who interacts with us on Twitter, Tea, Books, and Chocolate, for Mm. giving us the heads up that there is a television adaptation in the works of Tamara Price's expansive, I'm going to mispronounce this, Tor Troll Universe series. Okay, I'm going to rewind you a bit. Tamara Pierce. Yeah. Did I say Tormora? Yes, you did. <laughs> said Tormora Price. <laughs> not her name. Close, close. Also, it is so good that we have Heather as a guest <laughs> to talk about this because she loves Tamara Pierce. Right, Heather? I've never read Tamara Pierce. Why did I think that you had? I have absolutely no idea. Okay, let's cut all this out. This is just all useless. <laughs> it's one of those things that everyone tells me I need to read. <laughs> and I keep really... saying, yes, that's exactly up my alley. And then I don't get to it. Okay. All right. Cut all of this, Joe, in post. <laughs> Sorry, Brenna. <laughs> Why did I really think you had read it? I really did. Because it has dragons and stuff, right? You love dragons. And cats. It also is dragons and cats. Is that where the dragon and cat thing comes from? It's where I'm going to live in the future. Yeah, but I, uh. I haven't. So when you tweeted at me, we should get Heather to do this. I was like, yeah, that's way in the future. I'm just going to say, yeah, <laughs> I'll read it by then. <laughs> So for those not in the know, this is what the Deadline article says. It's the Tortal Universe series consists of more than 20 books and short stories. And it is a kingdom populated with lords and ladies, knights and sorcerers, and where few people are lucky enough to possess magical gifts. Which I'm like, okay, that sounds very generic. The description is actually (laughs) not incredibly enthralling but then at the bottom it says the series covers modern day themes of feminism lgbtq love lust coming of age diversity and class relations so which i say yes to all of those things so the few things i know about tamara pierce are that um yeah like strong on queer representation in particular dragons and cats 
and really <sighs> high-end level world building like Ooh. maps to cover like where you're going in this world so that you can keep track kind of stuff oh yeah the picture that accompanies this article is literally a map so it's definitely kind of like a modern high fantasy which we don't always see a ton of so yeah i mean i'm interested and i absolutely 100 percent thought that heather liked it so now i don't know what to say about it <laughs> i'm interested in anything that undermines what you expect from a sword and sorcery Mm. yeah that's what i want to see in fantasy these days so yeah yeah, yeah well because who wants to see the same story over and over again right well obviously a lot of people a lot of people <laughs> not us though no, not us no. no no okay heather did you do any homework for this episode i did yay oh. i'm so glad that you mentioned maps joe because um i have been actually doing with my students an assignment where they are analyzing maps from fantasy books and Ooh, uh, from children's that's fantasy a great assignment it is so cool and they're doing an amazing job and it's just it's so fun but the book that started it all is a book from 2017 called the girl of ink and stars by kieran millwood hargrave and she is a writer from london and her book is a children's fantasy but i would describe it as a post-colonial fantasy oh cool it challenges an awful lot of what you would expect particularly the kind of myth of the singular hero. Mm. And it uses indigenous um, myths from the Canary Islands to do it. Ooh. It's just, it's really great. But she has coming right after Christmas, her first adult novel. So oh. that I am really looking forward to. It was the subject of a 13-way auction at uh, the London Book <laughs> Fair. Holy cow. And it was called The Book of the Fair. But the other one I'm looking forward to is actually her newest book is a YA book that just came out. And it's called, well, it came out this year, probably longer ago than I think, because <laughs> just came out for me does not necessarily mean a month or two. And because 2019 has been five years long. Yes. <laughs> Um, but it's called The Deathless Girls, and it is uh, a YA novel about the, the background of the Brides of Dracula. Oh my gosh, Heather, you you touched my soul. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. But I'm really excited, particularly because she's a writer of color and she does things that kind of challenge, you know, classic literature. So I think it could be really cool. That is two things that we are also in love with. Yes, and two things that take their time making it to adaptation. So oh we're goodness. always like happy to have things on the radar. So many freaking white people in the YA <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, those sound great. They do. Brenna, have you got anything? I do, and I... Mm, Why do you sound so sad? <laughs> because I was debating whether or not we needed to weigh in on this in the show, but I think we do, but I'm going to try to keep it short. So there was a YA drama on the Twitters this week, oh. last week for when you're listening to this, folks. So Sarah Dessen, who is a massive name in contemporary YA, particularly sort of YA romance, she took to Twitter because she'd had her feelings hurt, which is fine. Authors are allowed to have affective responses to the way people react to their books. They're human beings. This is true. We've seen it even from some of our favorites. But instead of just saying like, hey, Twitter, I found out something today that made me kind of sad. Show me pictures of cats, which would be an appropriate way to deal with her feelings. So what happened was she found out that three years ago, she found out that her book had been shortlisted for a one book event at a university, I believe. 
Oh, I know what you're about to talk about. Yes. And so this, uh, it turns out that a, a young woman who was on the jury for the selection of the book petitioned really hard against it and quite publicly against it because she wanted the campus to read something that was dealing with sort of more like contemporary issues, social justice. And the book that she was championing is the book that they eventually chose, which was Just Mercy which is a phenomenal book about the prison system and the legal system and and particularly how black men are treated in the legal system. It's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. So Sarah Dessen found out about this and she tweeted a picture of the article, which in fairness to her, she scratched the young woman's name out. But of course, Twitter found out who this young woman was almost immediately. Yeah, because... <laughs> it's Twitter. And she said, I can't believe anybody could hate my work this much. Ooh, not oh, about you. Come on. Oh, not about you. Not about and you. the weirdest part was that all of White Lady YA, which Ooh, is formidable. very much a thing. Yeah. They jumped to her defense. <laughs> they all came to her defense to say, uh... like, authors have feelings, and how could somebody be so thoughtless? And blah, 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 yeah. blah. How could someone be socially conscious and want to, like, upend? white lady YA-ville. Yeah, and so it turns out that like this extremely powerful white YA writer with a massive career, multiple New York Times bestsellers, spent quite a large portion of her time this week trashing a 19 or 20 year old woman of color who... Mm -hmm. That is a great look. (laughs) It's a great look. It's a great look. So, two interesting things. Obviously, number one, yes, authors can have affective reactions to people's reactions to their books but they aren't allowed to bully people about it (laughs) they aren't allowed to publicly name and shame their critics particularly when it's not even like this young woman was really critiquing sarah dessen she just wanted maybe a more robust text to be the selection for their one campus reads the other issue and this is interesting too is that Literary Twitter, which never pays attention to YA Twitter until there's drama. Of course, they all emerged to share their opinions, which was primarily number one. Ugh, why would they have put a YA book on the shortlist for that prize anyway? (laughs) So it's like everybody is everybody looks bad here. (laughs) But my favorite conceit in following literary Twitter's responses to Sarah Dessen, and I say this with absolutely no defense of Sarah Dessen, that lady is a mess (laughs) and she was rightly dragged. But every single person who sort of considers themselves like, quote, unquote, serious has to foreground their weighing into this issue by saying, like, I don't know who any of these people are, but my favorite one was a poet who will remain nameless, who who tweeted about Twitter will find out (laughs) who tweeted about Jodi Picoult and was like, I've never heard of this person. And I was like, "Okay, (sighs) I know you're lying, because if you've been in an airport or a shopper's drug mart, you know who Jodi Picoult is. Oh, blissful oblivion. Twitter's a mess. And I just wanted to weigh in. As usual, this is another example of the extreme privilege that we see among a particular coterie of white YA authors, often white women YA authors who really sort of rally around each other, sometimes not as critically as they should. And I think mm-hmm. if if any of the big names who jumped to her defense had actually like clicked through and looked at what was being said in the original article, I don't think they would have done that. And so, you know, just a reminder that your friends aren't always right. And yeah. maybe if you're not sure if your friend is right or not, you just shut up. <laughs> maybe just thinking about punching up instead yes! of punching down. Maybe punch up. Maybe punch up. 
That's a good like social media message for everybody to maybe think about. Don't react to a headline. Click through, yeah. read the article, and when in doubt, do not post reactionary <laughs> knee-jerk reactions because it's just not worth it. And as one of my friends texted to me this week, that poor Sarah Dessen really needs a group text where she could have done all this in peace and yes. nobody would have had to know how petty and small and punch up, punch downy she is in real life. Instead, she showed her ass on Twitter. Yeah, not a good look. Not a good look. Know what else is not a good look? What? The adaptation of the Golden Compass. <laughs> it was the smoothest, the smoothest of segues. I do, I do have a segue for you, though, honestly. Okay. So, um, you know, when you're talking about literary Twitter and how they're, you know, they come out and notice YA every once in a while. As a children's lit person, I often get odd looks from other literature scholars right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the boring the, ones of course <laughs> and there's the you know belief that maybe children's literature isn't as serious as you know so on and so forth which is great it's you know and i always react really well to that <laughs> tell you the truth but the golden compass and his dark materials are the books that those scholars will mention to me <laughs> so it's always you do children's literature oh i've read his dark material don't worry i've read a book by a man because they believe it's sufficiently literary that they're allowed to have read a children's book well that is fascinating because when i was doing research i mean obviously not in the case of the film adaptation and the jury is still out on the television adaptation that we're also talking about that has mm -hmm. only just begun airing but particularly around the book the reactions people love to talk about how this is emblematic of what ya should aspire to be really deep meaningful challenging notions that you know isn't afraid to be controversial and all i could think about was I think some of these people need to read a little bit more YA. <laughs> yes. A little bit more YA. I think it, it makes a lot more sense in the children's fantasy. I hate to use the word canon in that sense, Joe. Like as soon as you put it into YA, you're like, um, hello. <laughs> yeah. Angie Thomas exists. Like there are other people out there. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Brenna, oh. <laughs> for those who may not have cracked the spine on their nearly 500 page edition of His Dark Materials, what is Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass about? First of all, love a North American dumbed down title. One of my mm -hmm. favorite things. <laughs> I just love it. It's interesting because it's not as though Northern Lights is a particularly British slang term. No, it's true. But the Golden Compass just seems so on par with Americans' <laughs> need to, like, ramp up the interest level. Like, no one's going to buy a book called Northern Lights. We need something called the Golden, Golden Compass. Compass. <laughs> well, I love it because apparently Phil Pullman is, like, kind of annoyed that people now think that the Altheometer is a compass. Altheometer is a compass. He's like, it's not a compass. What? What? <laughs> okay, so, oh, jeepers, I'm going to screw this up. Heather, feel free to jump in. My plot summary is ineffective. Joe, feel free to cut me off if my plot summary is overly detailed. Okay. Okay. So uh, this is the story of Lyra, Lyra Belacqua. She lives in uh, one of the colleges of Oxford, and she is kind of left to her own devices to raise herself. And we meet her sort of running wild. 
Because she's an orphan. Yeah, she's an orphan, sort of. So the things you need to know about this world are that it's basically like steampunk Britain. And the main difference is that people's souls live outside of their bodies in these demons that accompany them throughout their lives. And when you're a child, your demon shapeshifts according to your mood and situation. And when you're an adult, you have a sort of fixed demon that says something about your personality and who you are. And so it's really very much like an alternate Britain. Like there are things that are the same and then there are things that are just like a little bit off and use of language is a little bit different. Um, and the kind of two big institutions of power in Lyra's life are Oxford, the university, where she's under the protection of the scholars there. And then this church, this very oppressive sort of capital C church. The reason Lyra is at the college is because she was left there by her adventuring uncle and at the beginning of the book, we find her upset and, no, sorry, let me rewind. <laughs> so at the beginning of the book, she is a carefree kid, kind of the leader of the other kids who live in and around Oxford, mostly the children of servants. And she is spying on her uncle's first meeting back with these other scholars and she sees that they're going to try to poison him. And so she saves his life sort of anyway uh then roger is missing i'm missing something in between but one of her little friends goes missing and there's this group of people called the gobblers which is short for the general oblation board it's a secret church funded project and they seem to be stealing children around the same time lyra gets kind of inexplicably adopted by this charming socialite named mrs coulter who's sort of an adventurer, sort of a scholar, but not really either of those things, who adopts slash hires Lyra as her personal assistant. It becomes clear to Lyra after some snooping and some socializing that actually Mrs. Coulter is involved with the General Ablation Board. And so she runs away and she hides out with the Egyptians, who are canal-faring nomads. They're basically... Gypsies. Roma, Joe, they're basically yeah. Roma um, people. And many of their children have been abducted. And one of the things that becomes really clear is that the more marginalized a child is, the more likely they are to have been abducted. Yeah. So the Egyptians are planning to go and rescue their children. They're forming an expedition to the Arctic. When Lyra left Oxford, she was given an altheometer, which she doesn't really know how to use, but she knows it's important. She's been told to keep it away from Mrs. Coulter. So she keeps it on her person um, and she shows the Egyptians that she has this tool. So she ends up going with them to the north. She helps them get a bear, an armored bear, to fight with them by finding his armor again for him. And because of that act of loyalty, he becomes like very loyal to her in return. And so she's got like this partner in this armored bear. Um, she befriends the guy with the hot air balloon. Oh, well. yeah. Lee Scoresby, yeah. Yes. So Lee Scoresby is um, an aeronaut, which uh, means he drives a hot air balloon with hydrogen, which seems, anyway, I don't know if something happens in a later book with that, but um, not great. They go to Bolvangar, Bolvangar, which is where they are researching, which is where the gobblers, the oblation board is researching and doing this experiment on children. And when they get there, Lyra discovers that what's happening is that they are severing children from their demons. And why, Brenna? Why? Capital D, why? <laughs> oh, yeah, because of dust. Dust. 
yeah so it's this whole innocence into experience thing this idea the church is so anxious about people moving into that space of experience um they want to try to prevent it and i don't know there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes later we'll, we can talk about it i didn't it wasn't entirely clear to me um it's all about original sin Yes. So she lets, uh, she manages to save all the kids there, and then she... She goes, goes to Yorick the Bears. She helps him to get his throne back. Yes, she organizes it so that she, because that bear really wants to be human, and so she convinces him that she is actually the other bear's demon, and he becomes all jealous, and they fight, and he bites off his jaw, which was kind of a lot for me. And then... And he gives her the name Lyra Silvertongue. Yes. That's her superpower is lying. Her superpower is lying, which is kind of awesome. It's her most interesting trait. And then you'd be forgiven if you thought that that was the end of the book, if you only saw the movie, because the movie's basically wrapped up now, but actually yep. it continues <laughs> on um, with the book. And um, they go to find Lord Asriel, who, oh, P.S., sorry, Lord Asriel is actually Lyra's dad, and Mrs. Coulter is actually Lyra's mom. Mm-hmm. When they get there, uh, Roger is with Lyra because she has rescued him. But unfortunately, what she doesn't realize is that her father wasn't expecting her to bring him the altheometer. He was hoping that a child would appear who you, he could use for his experiment because he's trying to get to this city in the sky that like lives inside the Northern Lights and has something to do with dust for some reason. And he's going to go and destroy all of dust which I don't really understand. And then she sees her dad and her mom making out. Mm-hmm. And then Roger gets severed from his demon because they fall down a cliff. Um, and then Roger dies. And then Lyra and her demon are like, we're going to go to the city in the sky and find out why dust is probably actually good because all these people tell us it's bad. And then the book ends. Okay, Brenna, good all the way up until the end. Yes. Roger does not get his demon severed because he falls down a cliff. What? Lord Asriel severs him i didn't think he really severed it i thought he was like holding onto the demon and then they fall off the cliff and then that it gets severed in the process of that he kills it the kills demon it. to create the power burst to open i thought the that happened after worlds. they fell down the cliff they're like falling down the cliff and they can see the demon and then like he's just limp in her arms he's not actually dead yet and then he like attaches the electro thingies to the demon and then and the lights show up it. in the sky i know that he kills it but i think <laughs> that he's severed first because they're so far i mean maybe not literally severed but they're like so far apart from each other that like roger has passed out in lyra's arms before the demon gets killed then roger dies maybe but i <laughs> I don't know. Heather, Heather, feel free to clarify, but I took it as yeah. like Lord Asriel had intention to do the severing in order to further his own goals and he more or less kills Roger. I, I agree that it's all intentional. This is Lyra's great betrayal, right? We yes. learn at the very beginning of the story that from the maester is that he knows that somehow Lyra's going to be caught up in these world shattering mm-hmm. events. And nobody knows why this kind of like dirty, lying, stubborn kid, you know, will probably be involved in all of these events. And it turns out that she's got to betray someone as part of it. And she can't know that it's going to happen. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And this is it. She betrays Roger by basically bringing him to Lord Azrael. Right. Mm-hmm. I kind of dislike that the reason that she's so important is because her parents are so important. It's a weird inversion of the special child myth that we've seen in a lot of other YA texts, but here it just seems extra like, oh, well, she's a bit of an urchin and her special superpower is lying and having really terrible parents. (laughs) 
I mean, she does have probably the worst parents we've come across yet in YA. Yeah, I haven't encountered a lot of child murdering parents thus far. <laughs> so kudos to you. <laughs> Her father is basically Byron. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Which makes him terrible. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes him a horrible human being. <laughs> so this book has a lot of connections to Paradise Lost, right? Yes, it has quite a few connections to Paradise Lost. And that part of what we're getting here in this story and what Philip Pullman is doing and what the movie completely ignores <laughs> is that he's, you know, he he's reacting against C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. So against <laughs> Narnia in a lot of ways. And what he's doing is he is in in many ways kind of rewriting Milton in order to kind of question ideas of dogma in religion right so dogma is fascism is the magisterium mm-hmm. right in the novel so you get that but there's also quite a number of like as byra pointed out this innocence and experience there's a lot of references to blake here mm-hmm. um so he's he's there's a lot of intertextuality in these books the thing i find the most interesting is the opposition to c.s lewis mm-hmm. which is great <laughs> Yeah. It's also gotten this book into a lot of trouble. Absolutely. It's been banned. Banned not like Harry Potter has been banned, I guess, but definitely banned by Christian school boards. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of controversy around how they were going to treat the themes in the movie and then also in the, the TV adaptation. Because am I allowed to spoiler alert the rest of the series? Why don't we just say... Because we normally don't, well, I mean, we always spoiler the book we're talking about, but here we have two other books that they didn't make movies of. So. Yeah. I think they presumably will for the at least the TV show because it's been picked up for an additional season beyond the one it's airing. So it looks like they're going to get through the first book by the end of series one. So we can expect that they will probably get to, what's the next one? The Amber Spyglass? The Subtle Knife. Okay, so they will probably get to that one at least. So let's just say that Heather's going to talk about the next two books for a minute. And uh, if you don't want to hear that, just skip ahead on your podcatcher of choice. Yeah. Okay. So I think, um, you know, one of the things that people react to quite a bit, not necessarily in this book, but in the later books, is that um, God dies. So it's the idea that God in in the books, the world of the books, they call it the authority. And in The Amber Spyglass, the authority is basically released from his prison. Hmm. And it appears relieved at this. And there's a lot of kind of metaphor here about, you know, releasing religion from dogma. Hmm. But when you say Philip Pullman kills God, people (laughs) react very strongly to that. So they see that headline on Twitter and then they go on a white lady rant, is what you're saying? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's interesting because I was reading all this stuff about the Catholic League boycotting the film and then i watched the film and i was like they work real hard not to say anything churchy in the movie version (laughs) like they absolutely yeah but that boycott was happening before anyone had actually seen a cut of the film right because i guess because of what else was in the trilogy because i don't even think this volume is so no that was the big thing for me when i was reading this i kept looking for where is all the anti-church stuff and really you've got a nefarious organization it almost seems like philip pullman has taken great strides to say i'm not really talking about the church i'm talking about these separate branches that Mm. have gotten their own measure of control and are executing these evil plans 
I mean, there's obviously a suggestion that they're either being funded or they're implicitly being supported. Like, well, if you can deliver results, sure. But if not, we're just going to disavow you later. But it really was not as anti-churchy as I expected. It becomes a little bit clearer, I think, you know, later on, although it is there in this book, that the the hinge here in terms of this world being different than our world is Calvinism. Mm. And what is Calvinism? So it's that John Calvin and basically Puritanism wins, right? And takes over what we would now expect to see as the Catholic Church, fundamentalist churches, so on and so forth, but rather amalgamates power. Okay. And one of the important things to think about in terms of Calvinist and Puritan thought um, around children is that they believed that children were inherently sinful. Mm. Right. So the idea of original sin is massive there. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's alluded to in this book, but it becomes much more prevalent, like you say, in the other books. In this one, it's, you know, other than the ecclesiastical nods here and there, it's not really massive that you're seeing a lot of the stuff with the religion in this book, for sure. Was that what dust then becomes the metaphor for? The idea that as the dust settles on people, dust being just like another variation of the original sin or the quote-unquote growing up and becoming less Puritan? Well, less pure, yeah, absolutely. I think the part to me that read as the strongest critique of how particularly like Catholicism functions uh, and it's weird because I was googling around because I've you know sometimes you have an inkling that a book is about something and then you start reading and then you can't find anybody else talking about it and then you just wonder if you're just extremely wrong <sighs> am I going crazy <laughs> I'm reading this I don't know I could not look away from the resonances with childhood sex abuse in the Catholic Church and like oh. this idea that there's this group within the church who are taking these children away and destroying them and everybody else just looks away because they're doing something that is like ultimately perceived of as of more value to me especially because especially because almost all the characters who we learn about are little boys i mean i know that girls are taken too but the characters who we all know about tony and roger, roger. and billy Billy, yeah. They're all boys. Um, to me, like, the resonance was so strong with this idea, particularly, and then you get into this idea of, like, severing the child from, like, his soul and, like, this whole innocence and experience thing and, like, whether or not a child can survive this act that is done to them by the by the oblation board. Yeah. Yeah. How they become, like, shells of themselves yeah. afterwards yeah. and so on. Ugh. Well, and you absolutely, you get this sense that the only groups that have any chance whatsoever of standing up against the magisterium are definite outsiders. Yes. Right? So the magisterium controls, you know, even what truth is in the rest of the world, unless you're in a pocket like, you know, Jordan College or you're Egyptian, right? Yes. Or you're yeah. a witch, right? But you have to be. So the rest of the world is just completely controlled, you know, top down by the magisterium. And so even yeah. what truth is, right? But, you know, absolutely. Those parallels, I think, are there. Yeah. I loved, well, okay. I'll confess, I didn't feel super strongly about this book. At times, I found it to be a bit of a slog. And it was just a little too kind of episodic British adventure for me. But having said that, 
I think a lot of the things within the book are actually more interesting to talk about than to actually read about. So like having this conversation makes me appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily value the book more, but I feel like a lot of the praise that has accompanied the book is well earned in that regard because it, it initiates so many interesting conversations. The thing that I really enjoyed was how the nature of this alternative world is also structured by not just lying, because lying is obviously a big theme in this book, but also the power structures are defined by rules of decency. And we can actually get cues that Miss Coulter and Azrael are bad people because of their adherence mm -hmm or disavowal of rules. So they're very strict in the way that they deal with children or speak with them, but then they themselves are constant rule breakers. It's this obsession that Mrs. Coulter has with decorum that made me think of like people who describe themselves on Twitter as radical centrists. You know, it's oh like this goodness. idea that like, <laughs> it doesn't really matter what else you do, but you must be polite. So like kill children all you like, but be polite about it. Yes, and don't wear a handbag in the house, <laughs> or my monkey shall attack you. When I was re uh, when I was rewatching the the movie and the adaptation, and and thinking about the book and thinking about Mrs. Coulter, I was thinking about exactly that, Brenna, like that obsession with decorum, and it made me wonder whether J.K. Rowling was inspired to write Dolores Umbridge in oh, some yeah. ways oh. from from Mrs. Coulter. I mean, they're very different people right mrs coulter is savvy and she is smart and you know she clearly is very high up in the magisterium and she manipulates people and dolores umbridge may be high up but she's not those other things right but there is this kind of like monstrous excess of mm -hmm. femininity happening with both of them yes that i think is really kind of fascinating as complex villainous characters but i love that it doesn't end up getting dialed down necessarily to their gender or their sex right like it's in there but at the same time nobody's saying uh, i don't know like I, the thing that i really like about miss culture i find her fascinating and compelling and she for me is the strongest part of both adaptations but the thing that I really like about her is that she doesn't use her sexuality for advances. It's like she's recognized that it's perceived as a handicap and she's had to become smarter to do the things that she thinks are important, knowing that stupid men will try to get in her way. So she's had to overcome that. And unfortunately, it's made her an absolutely terrible person. But it also makes her extremely interesting. There's that great moment early when Lyra meets Mrs. Coulter mm. and she's like, you're not a female scholar. Like <laughs> Lyra's clearly got disdain for female scholars mm -hmm. as these kind of mousy, you know, and, and we learn that that's Lyra's bias, right, in her viewpoint on the world because she mm -hmm. lives with these male scholars. But it also kind of gives us a clue as to some of the many facets of this character, Mrs. Coulter. I mean, mm -hmm. the book in general is not generous in its notions of possibilities of femininity right no we basically only have two two female adults in this entire universe that we meet yes oh sorry we've got the witch too we've got seraphina the witch i do like the witch i like the witch a lot but this, but you can see i mean it's a society that is structured 
by a patriarchal structure both mm-hmm. oxford and the church are wildly patri- pa- uh, patriarchal like this idea mm-hmm. that the all the women scholars are like crammed off in one other college and like lyra lady college <laughs> lyra doesn't even believe that they're like real scholars in quotation marks yeah. so on the one hand coulter represents this other option for femininity in a world that doesn't have a lot of other options for femininity and one of the Mm -hmm. things that lyra is so taken with when she goes to her house is this idea that like for the first time in her life things are pretty she's never really experienced prettiness as an aesthetic but the flip side of that of course is that prettiness is decadence and corruption (laughs) so i'm interested in all of this because really the only the women who lyra can aspire to be like are Ma Costa, who she's not going to aspire to be like, and a witch, who she cannot aspire to be like, right? And so mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting that so typical of so many of these kinds of adventure stories from this generation of British writers, where yes. we get an exceptional girl, but she lives in a world of men, mm-hmm. and her role models are men, and her companions are men, and her adventuring partners are men. To me, it's it's something that I just feel like I see over and over again in these sort of British adventure stories. I think we talked about it with the mortal. Did we talk about this with the mortal engines as being very much similar? We did, yeah. And then the counterpoint was last week in Watership Town, where it was like, well, (laughs) but maybe you should just be happy that there's even a girl. (laughs) This is your alternative. Your alternative is to be a buddy waiting to be knocked up. That's your other role. I mean, what I think many people react to in terms of Lyra is that she's not, you know. She's very unconventional, isn't she? She's unconventional. She's not Susan from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. She doesn't try to kind of uphold the hierarchy of her brothers, Mm -hmm. you know. She doesn't kind of adhere to any of the kind of expectations either that the men want from her, even though she kind of dabbles, right? It's very clear that she's kind of figuring it out by trying on, you know, Mrs. Coulter's perfume and trying mm-hmm. on Lord Asriel's in a way of seeing the world mm-hmm. but she's still figuring it all out herself mm-hmm. so what does it say about me that I don't care for her as a character <laughs> it's one of those things again where I can appreciate that something different is being tried but there's a line in the book where it's like she's not particularly imaginative mm-hmm. and that's treated as a plus and I appreciate mm-hmm. that within the confines of this narrative yes I can understand why she has to be pragmatic and realistic and it doesn't help that she's not like a dreamer who's got you know visions or something like that but I I don't know I I chafe at her as a central character I love that she's not likable okay I mean I like her <laughs> but I love that she doesn't try to fit into all of the different ways in which female characters in these types of books try to be likable you mm-hmm. know what I mean she just doesn't try to fit in is it because likability is associated with inherently masculine traits or inherently stereotypical feminine traits Ah, uh, okay yes that if she were to be consumed with likability in any sort of way then she's kind of falling into the patriarchal trap of trying to to please the men right or to be the plucky female who's gonna make it all work or the yeah the manic pixie dream girl or right all of those other things yeah exactly 
So can we come back to this idea that it's a classic British adventure story? Because that was one of the things that I struggled with. I think that's one of the reasons why it's probably going to be better served as a TV show as opposed Mm. to a single movie Mm. is it feels like there's a lot of, okay, we need to go over here so that we can do this thing. And then we're going to put a pin in that and then we're (laughs) going to come back and do this other adventure thing. It's a bit exhausting after a while. And maybe this is just because I was reading almost the entirety of the book over a weekend, which, as we've talked about, not the ideal situation. (laughs) I found the pacing of the book inconsistent. So there were times when I really wanted to know what was going to happen next, like when she's puzzling out what to do about the bears. Give Mm -hmm. me more bears, that's great. But there were substantial chunks where I just felt like the text was not... I don't know. We had the same conversation actually about Mortal Engines, which is that it sometimes felt like the author wasn't quite aware of which parts were interesting and which parts were not. And sometimes we get too much density in the parts that are sort of inherently less interesting. Like, I feel like we were on the river with the Egyptians for seven years. We were on there as long as she was. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like a day by day, like hour by hour, blow by blow. And, you know, a little bit of that is good, right? Because you get the sense of how constrained Lyra feels having to stay below deck. But also, pick it up. Pick up up the storytelling. Well, and to what end? They still make it to the Arctic, and then they're still on the dog sleds. And it's not as though anything that happened there... Yeah, the river scenes are all a bit of an exposition dump, right? It's where we find out all of the backstory. Lord Azrael's her father, what the alethiometer does, all of those things. Yeah. And so she kind of yeah. has to stay on the boat until we get all that out. <laughs> yeah, I was telling Brenna offline, Heather, that the scene that aggravated me the most is when she reads the compass. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the real name. I'm just going to be the dumb American who's like, compass, golden compass. <laughs> she reads it and she realizes that there's a boy that she has to go and seek out in the village. And she goes and she finds this boy. He's been separated from <laughs> oh! his demon. <laughs> and then she brings him back and he dies and then she gets to the <laughs> she gets to the facility and it's like, hey, what are they doing at this facility? Oh, they're separating children from their demons. You're like, yeah, we got it. <laughs> no, not Tony and Ratter Joe. <laughs> no. <laughs> if I never had to read about Ratter. Just charmingly heartless. Oh my god. <laughs> there is I a am lot of if only because it feels like a Dickens approach where I'm <laughs> writing by the word and this is going to come out in a daily newspaper and then, you know, this other section is going to come out three months from now. So I need to reiterate a bunch of stuff. But like when you're reading it as a book, it felt very repetitive in different sections. Like we know that Miss Coulter is bad. We don't need 10 different people to tell us that. At the same time, I think this is the section of the book and I agree with you. It is a little bit slow and quiet i think it's trying to give one you know a little bit of atmospherics about being in this you know place in the north that's just so empty and so on and so forth but lyra here is kind of making she's becoming ethical right like she's determining what her moral compass is (gasps) 
Moral compass? Is it golden? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say she's at a bronze moral. (laughs) She's working up to us. She still gets a kid killed at the end of the book. (laughs) Exactly. A little bit tarnished brass. Yeah, yeah. not the top of the podium yet. Yeah, Yeah. But I mean, she is kind of determining, right, that she's going to take a stand. She's going to make moral decisions. She's going to. She's going to help others. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we also get her the relationship between her and Oric Bernison is being developed in that journey. That's, I think, what I check to be the, the main takeaway, because at that point, she learns that she can rely on him. They come to an understanding of who each other is. And then, of course, it obviously pays off when she really comes through to help him regain his kingdom of the bears. Well, and I love Yorick Bernison and Lee Scoresby as like her pseudo gay dads. i mean they have a very peculiar relationship don't they they're just best buddies they're just best buddies (laughs) i i would like to read a spinoff with the two of them there is a spinoff with both of them are you kidding is there really it's called once upon a time in the north and it's a little hard book edition that was published after the series Around the same time as um, Philip Pullman also did one called Lyra's Oxford. And it's just more stories of Lyra in Oxford hanging out with the other children. Mm. I and think I'll take the former I was going to say, the, the former sounds great. The latter, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I don't need to hear about her adventures throwing clay at other children and stealing And then barges. we slept on the roof. <laughs> well, Once Upon a Time in the North gives a little bit of background into their relationship, but it also has a fold-out game. What? You can like play with like a little board game with the um the hot air balloon. Yeah. Huh. Okay, that's kind of cool. Intrigued. <laughs> I'm gonna recommend that we transition over because we still have an entire movie and television show to talk about. One of those is gonna be real short. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? It's an alethiometer. It tells the truth. You are meant to have it. You keep the alethiometer to yourself. It's of the utmost importance to yourself, to all of us, and perhaps to all creation. I propose to discover a world much like our own in a parallel universe. That is heresy. That is the truth. Are you familiar with the prophecies of the witches? think she is that child she must be found war is coming lyra her loyalty will be put to a proper test i need to go north and fight we've protected her as long as we could you have no idea what's at stake are you going to join in this turkey shoot? Yes, I have a contract with a child. Okay, so, Brenna, I feel like I'm going to absolutely shock you with uh, one of these stats. So, okay. let's start with the film, simply called The Golden Compass from 2007. I like to call this, we definitely thought we were going to get the money to make more of these. Uh-oh. Yeah, so let's talk about the money, because that's what's going to stand you. Budget for this monstrosity, $180 million. No. Yeah. No. That is higher than Harry Potter movies, people. This, okay, 
oh, they didn't spend it on CGI. So <laughs> whence did they spend it? <laughs> Except, Brenda, that they won an Oscar for the visual effects nope. for this movie. No. Nope. Yep. Oscar winning the Golden Compass, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Rated 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just to quickly run through it. So this is directed by Chris White's Key of American Pie. And <laughs> this was his attempt to break into other types of movies. Well, he also directed about a boy, right? Or did he? Oh, no. Paul White's he directed wrote. it. Right. Okay. I forgot he has a brother. Yeah. The brother is the one with the talent. Go on. <laughs> uh, are you referring to the man who won the Oscar for Green Book, the racist were not racist movie? <laughs> Green Book was year? such great Oscar bait because it was like white people are going to feel great about how progressive they feel for <laughs> loving this movie, which is yeah. how you know something's going to win an Oscar. It's so predictable. Mm. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> Both the movie and the TV show do a good job of stacking the deck with the adults, which is classic YA move. So we got Daniel Craig, Nicole Kidman, Jim Carter from Downton Abbey, although he was not famous for that at the time. Eva Green, Sam Elliott, and then the voice of Ian McKellen and Freddie Highmore. And Lyra is played by Ingenue Dakota Blue Richards, who I found out is actually in another YA adaptation that I had never heard of before, but we can add it to the list, Brenna. I actually liked her as Lyra. Yeah. Oh, I liked her too. Her hair bothered me to no end, but she was a good Lyra. I could not watch it this time without being like, why is Carson doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Carson. Set the silver, Mr. Carson. I really couldn't. It was was kind of disturbing. For me, it was Sam Elliott who was the distracting, like... I kind of like Sam Elliott in this. I liked him. Yeah, he's great if you want him to just come to your movie and be Sam Elliott at you. There is that. (laughs) Especially when he shows up and he's like, I'm going to turn this into a secret Western for about two minutes. Yes! He's a Texan! In the book, can I just say, in the book when he makes reference to Wells Fargo Bank, I found that wildly, like I know that Wells Fargo did exist like way back in the day. I do understand that. But it's not like anybody's talking about like going to other Mm -mm. things that still exist. So when he's like, I got to go make a deposit at Wells Fargo, I was like, is this book brought to me by Wells Fargo? (laughs) I have to admit, Lee Scoresby and Hester, more so Hester, are my favorite characters. Who's Hester? Yeah, who's Hester? Oh, wow. Good on you. This is how you know you're in the presence of a true fan, because I could not tell you the name of a single other demon apart from Pan. Okay, so the cool thing about Hester in this movie is that she's actually voiced by Kathy Bates. Oh. Yes. Which They've is got awesome. a couple of big famous people for the voices, but I didn't really add them in because, uh, yeah, I couldn't keep them apart. I just love that he is this kind of outsider and yet he's not toxic masculinity man. He's like, mm-hmm. I have gentle tears for this girl and I'm going to trust her and let this young girl be the leader. And yeah. it just makes me love him. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not going to lie, dealing with Egyptians early on in particularly the book and a little bit in the TV show, dealing with them being like, you're a little girl, you can't come with us. I'm like, we all know how this ends. Skip to it. <laughs> so when when you get to him and he's like, oh, you seem like an amazing girl. Let me tell you of my adventures while we go hot air ballooning. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I am down for that adventure. <laughs> 
And Farter Corum is so much better of a character in the book than he yes. is in the movie. And That's... he's so much more important as like a voice of reason and a voice of maturity and a voice of experience. But in the movie, he seems drunk. Yes. Well, he seems like someone stereotyped him up. And then, yeah, they plied him with liquor and meh. So, Brenna, do you want to talk about them special effects? Because you love to talk about CGI that does not work for you in these movies. <laughs> the CGI did not work for me in this movie. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I guess, I don't know. Some of it was okay. I didn't find the bears just as distracting as I expected to. But I found the demons really distracting. Like, I, uh, they don't look like people are actually touching them. And I found that confusing. No. There's one part where it looks like it was in one of the scenes where Pan is like getting strangled or grabbed. I think it's when they're at the facility and the guard grabs Pan by the throat yes. and Lyra freaks out. And you're like, it looks like somebody just has an open hand. Yes, it and does. And they digitally inserted like a ferret into it or something. <laughs> yes. You're just like, no, wholly unconvincing. Oscar. <laughs> See, and it's funny because when I watched the movie, I watched it after the show. Mm. And one of the things that bothers me so much about the television adaptation is there just are not enough demons. Like, where are they all? We all yeah, know somebody has true. an animal. Why are they just walking around? <laughs> where are these demons? And in the movie, at least they make an effort to do that. Yeah, particularly in the town scene where, what's the bear's name? Yorick? Yorick Burnison? <sighs> Ooh. Tells me my old VP academic. <laughs> it's Baron Berenstein. Uh, when he gets his when he gets his armor back and the you know that army of folk come at him with the guns, you can see so many demons in that crowd, and I really like that part because you're like, oh yeah, okay, everybody has one of these things, and they take all these different types of shapes and forms. And when they're not actually trying to touch them, they look fine. Yeah. It's only really when they have to interact with them, which unfortunately is, I don't know if you guys noticed, but a pretty central component of the text. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you also notice when their Lyra's running across the roofs in the beginning of the movie, and Mm. you can see one of the demons slips, so then it just turns into a bird so that it doesn't fall. Mm. And you can see that changing nature of them. Although one of the things that you just never see is, it's mentioned in the book that Lyra's demon can turn into almost like a small dragon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted never to see, see that. it in any of the adaptation. No, which seems like a really missed opportunity. You got an opportunity for a dragon. Yeah. You take that opportunity. You run with it. Well, maybe they didn't have the budget. Oh, wait, 180 million. <laughs> right. Okay. I think one of the things that bothered me, particularly on the first watch of this film, like I saw this in the theaters back in 2007, it was not clear to me then. It's a little bit more clear having now read the book and I was keeping out for signs of it. I don't really feel like it's clear until about midway through the film that these are their souls embodied Mm -hmm. in animal form. It just seems like they have animal companions for the first part of the film. Mm. And it's not always clear that you can hurt them, like you can hurt a person by hurting the demon. Or if they go too far, like there's no clarity that if they move too far away from you, that it becomes physically painful or that you like have to do that. Like the film does a terrible job. Of yeah, I was going to say, I don't feel like the film is very consistent in that. Like it seems like, and actually the TV show too. So one of the things that I struggle with is the part where Mrs. Coulter can beat up on her demon. Mm-hmm. I don't. Can slap your soul around. 
I mean, I guess you can metaphor. I guess we all do metaphorically, but it just seems like okay if the conceit holds. Like you could see this. You could see it as a metaphor for self harm. You could see it as a metaphor for all kinds of things, except that she doesn't react with any. There's no reaction that she has caused herself pain when she does that. So it's very confusing. Yeah, because that scene does happen in the book as well, where she she slaps the monkey. Yeah. To try to give it some sense, but yeah, I wonder if it's if you do it. You're not inflicting pain on yourself. You're just inflicting pain on your demon. I think it's just about her coldness, right? Is that inflicting pain on herself and that kind of self-hatred that is a kind of intricate part of her character is so inert. Like it's so part of her that she doesn't feel the pain anymore. Mm. Mm. She is a bit of a like dead inside kind of lady. It doesn't bother me at all in the book, but there's something about the visual visual representation of it that feels so inconsistent with the other times we see the demons being harmed that maybe it's just not clear enough hmm. to me for it to work. The movie says, well, well okay, exposition. Well, maybe. Whereas the <laughs> show is like, oh, exposition. We're going to do this, people. Oh, my God. Right? It's really, really devoted to it. So it's kind of interesting to see the kind of skipping forwards all the time in the movie. Just like, la-ti-da, here's a major plot point. <laughs> yeah. But we're just going to keep going. Joe, is yeah. it okay if we talk about the TV show, too? I set out for the North some 12 months ago. And this is the first of the discoveries I made. Myriad of worlds of which the Magisterium controls only one. For centuries, they have been trying to keep us where they want us, one on knees. You promised the Magisterium you'd control Hasriel. And we need to take the matter into our own hands. Lyra, there's a great change coming that will threaten us all. I'm going to give you something. What does it do? It has a part to play in all this, and a major one. Tell me where the alethiometer is. I will destroy all of this. We represent a number of families who have lost children. This is war. I think this can help. She can read the alethiometer. She will be more valuable to us than any soldier we have. We'll get our children back. You may have a heart, but the magisterium have a muscle. What else do we need to fight them? Has anyone seen a bear? It's a good bear. You won't have any trouble. Witches have known of the other worlds for thousands of years. Azriel is bringing a great war. Then I hope I'm strong enough. Azrael needs to die. Lyra, now is the time to choose a side. Yeah, I was going to say, let's just quickly introduce that so that uh, everybody knows the distinction. So the TV show is called His Dark Materials. It's currently airing on HBO in North America, but it's also a BBC One co-production that's airing in the UK. So it's eight episodes, uh, presumably, to cover the first book. It's got a much better rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's sitting at 80% right now. And we've swapped out famous people for other famous people. We've got James McAvoy as Azrael, Ruth Wilson as Miss Coulter, and our lead is played by Daphne Keene. And she broke out as the child in Logan. 
one of the most recent X-Men movies where Wolverine is aging and he has to take over ownership of a young child who's very similar in powers to him. Mm. The series also has Lin-Manuel Miranda, but he doesn't show up until episode four, as well as Andrew Scott and David Suchet, who I was like, Poirot's going to be in this? That's exciting. I have a fun connection. Do you? James McAvoy plays Asriel. James McAvoy also played Tumnus the Fawn in the Hollywood production of right. uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a very different role. <laughs> <laughs> Religion from both sides. But James Cosmo, who plays Father Coram in this, also played Father Christmas in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Huh. So it's like there's a traveling cast of British fantasy. It's true. Know, just go. Yeah. There's 12 people you can hire. Yeah. I can't tell any if they're white men too. I can't tell any of them apart. It's this recurring thing on the show where like <laughs> older white men. I'm just like I don't I don't know. Like I can't tell the two Dumbledores apart, for example. Oh yeah, me neither. No idea. Okay. So <laughs> one one big thing about the television show is that the episodes are quite long. So we're talking about somewhere in the 52 minute range compared to conventional network television. Episode two is 55 minutes long. Let's just be clear. Yeah, so they're they're really taking their time with it, which means that instead of a two-hour movie, we're going to end up with eight hours to adapt this. And in some ways, it's really working. Like the second episode, which is the Miss Coulter heavy episode, where Lyra is kind of locked up in this amazing apartment that has an elevator that disappears unless Miss Coulter calls for it, which is great as a bit of a like a single location kind of locked room mystery episode that really worked for me like getting to spend an hour of lyra feeling cooped up that was effective but then the two of you have likely not seen it because it just became available to us by the time this episode drops it will already have been out but episode three is almost entirely set on the river so boring (laughs) it's an hour of her just like sitting on the boat and people (laughs) occasionally dropping some exposition on her yeah there's a very little reprieve from it and it feels excruciating it's funny for me anyway the film is like there's so little exposition as to be often incoherent and the way they've moved around plot points to oh, yeah. serve what purpose i'm not sure often incoherent and if i hadn't read the book i'd have no idea what was going on i love that the movie basically just opens by being like there are multiple universes <laughs> just connects them children of the future these people are bad here's a movie <laughs> and they're bad for no discernible reason no discernible they're reason. just bad and oh my god does the movie ever think people are not clever because i was texting joe last night that like in the book it's like you get all the way to the end of the book and at one point one person says and i know it's because they had different titles but at one point one person says oh this uh alfiometer looks kind of like a compass <laughs> whereas in the movie it's like the compass is golden there's a golden compass golden compass golden compass golden, <laughs> golden compass golden compass it's the golden compass <laughs> so distracting it's almost like in case you've forgotten what movie you're watching or you're stupid but the flip side is that the tv show is like exposition yeah the tv show is like we need to do this right by including everything everything <laughs> It's slow motion. I, I, I will say the second episode I, I enjoyed, the first episode 
was so boring. Oh my god. Yeah. So I ended up watching the first two hours back to back and the first episode ended. I was watching it with my husband, Brian, and a friend of ours, Daniel, from Ottawa, was up visiting. So I was like, let's all watch this together. The first episode ended, and I just kind of turned to them and said, if I wasn't doing this for the show, <laughs> I don't know that I would continue. I don't mean that in a, like a snarky, kind of mean-spirited way. Just, like, I can't imagine being a layman with no exposure to the book and watching that episode and being like, this is dynamic. I need to know what happens next because that's actually one of the biggest problems with the TV show is that every episode just ends. There's nothing compelling that says you have to tune in for the next hour. I feel like this movie and the show have just very different implied audiences. Yeah. The movie is like fantasy, fantasy, look, fantasy. Mm -hmm. And the show is like, you've read this before. Now we're all going to lay down in it for a while. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. We're treating this with reverence and respect. And we're probably, I feel like it's actually going after an adult audience. Absolutely. Whereas the movie, which cost $180 million, which is not going to be easy to recoup. And it made 80. So it did not recoup that budget. Spoiler alert. They're not making the sequels. Did I read that this is the most money BBC has ever spent on the production? Maybe. So I was trying to find budget for this and I couldn't find it. But honestly, the special effects. Oh, they're beautiful. The visual world of this TV show. This is, hello, cinematic quality. This looks great. I have feels though. Oh, okay. So there's certain things because they're slowing down and there's things that they're adding, which I think feel really, really true to the book. So the demon ceremony with the Egyptians, mm-hmm. you know, where Tony gets his demon settles oh, yeah. and they have a whole ceremony. Right, and I think yeah. that's really, really true. And it's giving us exposition that we need about that serious relationship between the child and the demon mm-hmm. and what growing up means and all of these different things, but also about the, the Egyptian community. I think it works really well. But there's other things that they just skip or they don't make room for because they're putting more emphasis in other places that confused me so like a small detail is asriel you know shuts lyra in a heating vent she's not in a wardrobe Mm. i want my lyra in a wardrobe well the echoes i mean if to me that's like it's like the opposite of the narnia wardrobe right exactly it's really important in that way but also just the setting up of Lyra as someone who has been petted and coddled by these scholars mm-hmm. and is like the favorite that everybody knows she's a brat is so important to Lyra's character because she has to realize that she's privileged and bratty, mm-hmm. right? She can't kind of come out of these things or have these realizations unless she is petted and coddled. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get that sense in the show. You don't get any of the time that she spends with the other kids other than Roger there's no kind of sense of that community there. As much as I really like Clark Peters from The Wire as the maester, I really, really do like him. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we're not getting a big kind of sense of Jordan College as a place. And yeah. I don't know why. I know those chapters are short in the book, but they they loom really large in my mind. I think part of the problem is that you need to know about them. But at the same time, if you're thinking about how to get people into this story... You can't dedicate too, too much time there. 
I can spoil something in the episode that the two of you haven't seen. We actually get extra scenes from Miss Coulter's point of view where she goes back to Jordan College looking for Lyra. And she has like an encounter with the maester. And he defends the way that he's handled the situation. They get into an altercation and she ransacks the college. So I think part of what the television series is going to do is it's going to beef up certain types of roles like you've got James McAvoy you've got Ruth Wilson you're going to use them more than what we see in the book but I think they're also spreading certain interactions out so Heather actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I can't remember the character's name but he works for the magisterium and we've now seen him go into our world like our world as in the world that we live in in the real world and he's soliciting help to find Lord Asriel. And those are not scenes that are included in the book at all. They're from the subtle knife. Okay, I was going to say, I think that this is them pulling in books two and maybe even three into this. And I'm wondering how you feel they're doing in terms of incorporating that. The character's name's Carlo Boreal. And he is Mrs. Coulter's lover but only so that she can use him because of his inside connections. And in the books, he is a corpulent old white man. And in the show, he is hot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's been some very deliberate efforts, uh, which Brenna, I think you and I have applauded fairly regularly in recent adaptations where they try to do more blind casting in terms of diversity. Mm Mm-hmm. I did read the, I think, AVTV Club review of the first couple of episodes. They did lament the fact that they've basically done this, but then not address the fact that like race would play a part in the way that these individuals are treated. Mm. The Maester is also cast diversely, and of course, in the other iterations, he's like generic old white guy. That, I think, would be a very different power dynamic than what we're treated to. But in the TV show, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's matter-of-factly. I did like that they uh, make the effort to show that the children who are being abducted are primarily children from marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So, like, when you see the shot of, like, Roger and he's first meeting all these other kids, like, yeah, Billy's there and Billy's another white kid, but, like, most of the kids are kids of color, Mm -hmm. which to me makes a lot of sense, right? Like... We're already seeing a world that is sort of dominated by these structures. I get what they're saying with the AV club, because if you bake diversity into those larger structures, then where does the marginalization come from for these other communities? Like there's kind of a disconnect happening there. Mm-hmm. I think it makes sense in terms to make the Egyptians extremely diverse. Because yes. They're already yes. a marginalized community. Absolutely. Yes. And so when you see, and I mean, the kid that plays Billy is just a adorable that cat with his glasses (laughs) just loved him you know it it really really works what bothered me in terms of the casting i think was james mcavoy one he's not my favorite uh yeah well but also um uh, ma costa Mm. yeah she's so young she's so young and so um depicted as unraveling so much she's so strong in the book She's so strong. And the Egyptians are their own community who are extremely competent. They just don't follow the ways of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you see Ma Costa played by Anne-Marie Duff with this kind of dirty house that's falling apart, well, river house or boat house yeah. falling apart, it just doesn't feel true to me to this solid, 
you know, character that Ma Costa is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's frustrating that they give all of that strength to... Oh, Tony. Tony, yeah. They basically take all of her strength and give it to Tony mm-hmm. and then treat her as the grieving mother, which is a little bit frustrating. I, I didn't know that Anne-Marie Duff is James McAvoy's wife. Oh, really? That's interesting. Because I was wondering why she had been cast for that. I guess what also bothered me about it is, I mean, I want Ma Costa to be fat. Yes, mm. I agree. She's yeah. described as solid and having a large bosom numerous times. Yes. And I want there to be this, you know, competent fat actress playing her. And, you know, in this adaptation, there's not. Well, especially because, you know, it's also revealed in the book, eventually, Ma Costa was actually the nurse who protected mm-hmm. Lyra when her mom went crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people were trying to kill her because she was conceived out of wedlock. And it's really important that there's a juxtaposition between the cool, the calm, the svelte Miss Coulter and the more maternal figure, right? Like the book and hopefully the TV show, not at all the movie, really based on binaries, right? There's Mm -hmm. like a lot of yin and yang and duplicates and that kind of stuff. So it's sad to just have like hot blonde (laughs) versus... With disheveled hair. Yeah, yeah. And later, maybe she'll be less disheveled, and then it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Can we talk about the Mrs. Coulters, though? Because I'm, I feel like we need to give a shit, like, we really ragged on the film, because it's a piece of hot garbage. But (laughs) I remember in 2007, walking out of the theater and being like, well, that was awful. But I really felt like it was good for Nicole Kidman. And then I'm watching the TV show, and I'm loving Ruth Wilson's performance. So I feel like I need to give a shout out to these actresses who are playing against type, but they're delivering nuanced, interesting performances in shows and movies that are not always nuanced and interesting. I love Ruth Wilson. She just, every little motion where she, you know, when she goes to touch Lyra the first time, and she kind of recoils at her own touching of the child, right? And yeah. it's just so subtle and wonderful. And just that, that she, of course, she's kind of sexy, but she's very buttoned up, right? Mm-hmm. That she has to be in this measure of control all the time. That as much as I, and I do like Nicole Kidman, the slip dresses and the, you know, the gold lame that they drape her in, it's just the she's sexiness is a sexy. little too much. Yeah. Yeah. There's a scene in the film, late in the film, and it's changed from the book where she actually stops the procedure happening on Lyra. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't ring true to me at all. No. And even though Nicole Kidman's doing, you know, a good job of conveying, like, her fear that her daughter is in danger at this point. We don't know that she's actually her daughter. But that, to me, was, like, the big misstep in the film. And it doesn't do the character any good. Because it tries to humanize her in a way that you're just like, no, this character's a human monster. Whereas I feel like in the TV show... They've done such a good job, and Ruth Wilson is acting the hell out of Mm. this. The conflicted nature that she feels about different things. Like when the monkey attacks Pan in that second episode, you can see her wanting to put a stop to it, but also knowing that she can't. And the, the connection between human and demons has never been stronger. Like it's never come out well enough in the other versions and then in that scene i was like oh i get it it is a manifestation of your emotions and the way that you're feeling but also it is a completely separate entity at the same time 
I love that breakfast scene with Daphne Keene just stabbing the eggs. <laughs> and they're saying nothing, but they're just, they're playing off each other so well. And I don't know if Nicole Kidman and the child actor from the movie had the same kind of chemistry. Mm. Yeah. There's not character beats in the film because we've got to get to the next action sequence. Yeah. Which has never been more evident than in the completely unnecessary bear fight scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've we've talked at length about the terribleness of these YA movie conclusions, like the nonsense action sequence that ends the film with the witches, you know, flying all over the place and the bear. And you're just like, yeah, okay, that's dumb. But basically a two minute CGI bear fight. Like I know it's in the book, but because they've removed the implication of Lord Asriel being yeah. there. Yeah. I'm just like, why is this scene in here? And <laughs> why happening? is it happening now? It's <laughs> happening before they even get to the facility. Like, it's so dumb. It makes well, no at... sense because it implies to that, I don't know, there's something urgent about the priority of getting to the facility. And you mm -hmm. totally, you strip that away when you <laughs> insert a random bear fight. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, oh, I'm going to help him get his kingdom back. And like, but why? This whole journey, like, you're just going to derail it to have a side adventure <laughs> with the bear. But what confuses me about the show, because it is doing so much loading of exposition, is why they don't make more of the conversations between demons and humans. Mm. Because you have a yeah, great not doing that way of doing exposition. You're talking to your own soul out loud yeah. right? mm. all the time. Be a lot easier to take the lengthy expositions from in that way. Exactly. So that's... So some of that, also the physicality, like the physical relationship that Lyra has with her demon in the book, you really feel it, right? And you and and you can relate to it in all sorts of ways if you have a pet or whatever it is. And I think that's part of the real magic. But there is some of the fantasy really getting stripped out of this show because it is going for that adult audience, I think. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because even the way that they've more steampunked it, so it looks very contemporary, and then you've got occasional throwbacks like the the blimps oh, that the are patrolling and stuff. Yes, that feels like a very concerted effort to say, we're not for children here. This is for sophisticated audiences who can appreciate this kind of nuance. Uh, but also, therefore, we can't have a child speaking to a ferret for too long. I want a little bit more steampunk aesthetic, though. So I want a little mm. less steel plates, like yes. a little less HG Wells and a little more Jules Verne. I feel the same way. Mm. I don't think you're going to get it, unfortunately. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> They've settled on that design aesthetic and they're probably not going to budge. But James McAvoy's knitwear, though. Mm. Men in <laughs> knitwear. It's a good year for that. <laughs> yeah. This is a gentle plug for Knives Out if you haven't seen it. Chris Evans in knitwear sweaters. Mwah. <laughs> I have some trivia to share. Okay, why don't we wrap up with some trivia? So Tom Hooper, who directs the HBO series, mm -hmm. bit of a prestige director, right? Cats, notwithstanding. This is the no. guy who won the Oscar for The King's Speech. He directed the Academy Award Loved, but anti-progressive nightmare, The Danish Girl. Uh, you know, Ooh. he had Les Miserables. Before that, he did the HBO series about Elizabeth I and John Adams. Like, prestige director, right? Yep. So he got his start directing teen soap operas. Yes. So spin him right back to the content this show loves. So teen sitcom or teen soap opera called Keyside. 
I actually watched this when I was a kid visiting my grandparents. It was very much like Coronation Street for tots. It was very much like a youth soap opera set in Northern England. And then he directed a show called Biker Grove, which was another teen soap about high school life uh, in the UK. And then he graduated from that into EastEnders and then eventually moved into non-soap opera based television after. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, interestingly, if we're doing uh, connections to YA material, yeah, I should note that uh, the actress who plays Lyra in the film, Dakota Blue Richards, she would go on to star in multiple seasons of the UK Skins. So, oh, that has now come up several times. So, I feel like Brenna, when we switch into some mini-sode action yeah. in the new year, that'd be a good one. I think maybe we should do like a like a little episode on Skins and maybe check out the UK version compared to the american version that would be fun i like that shout out to alex heaney who guest starred on our uh, hunger games episode she has requested that from us okay cool we could do that is it time for bingo i think it's time for some bingo bingo not a good bingo all right heather you are our guest so do you want to take a first crack at it okay you don't have to do the whole thing you can pick a couple okay Definitely supernatural elements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've actually not really talked about the witches at all, have we? No. And Serafina Piccolo's. Yeah, she's my favorite character from the book, for sure. Yeah, they... Oh, man. I love me some Eva Green, and she is not well used in that movie. No, no. It just bothers me. I absolutely cannot wait to see the bears and the witches in the HBO. Because I'm mm-hmm. imagining that's where they're spending all their money for the CGI. Mm-hmm. Because so. we're not seeing demons when you're in a hall full of people. They're probably saving it for the bears and the witches. Yeah, I yeah. think you're right. Yeah. Definitely dystopia. Mm-hmm. Definitely unlikely friendships. Mm-hmm. In what way? Bears and little girls. Bears and little girls. <laughs> yeah. That could be it. It's true. But, well, I don't know. I think back to that scene with um, Lord Boreal in the cafe in the show. Right. Right. right? With that fellow. I mean, there's all these kind of unlikely alliances happening. Bears and Texans. (laughs) Just saying. Can I say that, like, like, you have your perfect date if you have your demon with you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say no to that. I like the attempt. Okay. All right. Mediocre white boys, Lord Asriel. <laughs> oh my god. He's like the grown-up version of what they'll all turn out to be. It's so true. Why is he so weirdly cheerful in the show? That's what I'm trying to figure it out. Makes no sense. It makes no sense. I'm going on an expedition to ruin the world. <laughs> and I really love children, but I abandoned them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really strange. Allusions to classic lit, for mm-hmm. sure. Growing apart. For sure. Mm-hmm. Absentee adults. For sure. There's a lot of stuff to do with adults that'll get on this board. Yeah. A cerviquet? Uh, Hester in the book. I'm going to say no. <laughs> All right. I just don't think it's memorable enough. Yes. Ruth Wilson? She's not on the board, Heather. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but I meant her as cerviquet. Oh, Okay. Thought you meant like we should have a square for Ruth Wilson. Yes, we should just have a square for Ruth Wilson. <laughs> that's for the future. Well, CGI then. So okay. that's what yeah. I see. Yeah, CGI is totally there because I complain about CGI so much. This is true. I'm going to add do bad for the greater good. 
because obviously Lyra has to betray in order for the something something thing. Well, she's also got to lie all the time. Yeah, yeah, the lying. (laughs) That works. And I think abuse on account of all the child murder and whatnot. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think the movie is definitely guilty of stunt casting. Yeah, yeah. I think even James McAvoy can count as stunt casting. Yeah. Oh, Daniel Craig going down that snow cliff. <laughs> oh, my goodness. James Bond? What was happening? I <laughs> love that that scene was even in the film because I, well, I appreciate a show me, don't tell me. There's no need for that. That's just a scene that exists to have a person go over a cliff and have some action beats. And you're just like, no, movie. This is why you're $180 million. This didn't need to be in the film. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to add gaslighting because both of her parents are just lying to her all the freaking time. Yeah, that works. Oh, convenient expertise because our mediocre white boy is a renaissance man. (laughs) He'll do absolutely everything. That's a really good point. I was actually going to put that in there because she magically has the ability to read the compass and everybody's like, nobody can do this without the book. And she's like, I can. (laughs) Check me out. (laughs) In the movie, that's particularly egregious because it happens like that. Like in the book, at least you get some where she's struggling with it. She's figuring things out. In the movie, it's like, no, I can do it. It's fine. No worries. I was so frustrated with the way that they handled that in the movie. It was like she just like runs into a person and he's like, oh, yeah. Hey, let me show you how to use that. (laughs) Okay. All right. That's a lot of squares. And once again. Not a line. Not a line. (laughs) So close, though. I was bothered by the musicality of the movie. Like, we're going to steal children. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's very true. <laughs> does that give us a line if we add that? It does. It actually. does! <laughs> yes! Cha-cha-cha! All right, well, now I'll have to come up with a sound cue for that. Uh... <laughs> no, I just gave it to you. It says, cha-cha-cha! What do you win if you get a bingo? I mean, we've never gotten one, so we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, shall we move into some housekeeping? Yes. So if you want to talk to us because The Golden Compass starring Nicole Kidman is your favorite film, uh, you can find us on Twitter using the hashtag HKHSPod. That gets both Joe and I. Uh, If you want to just talk to Joe, how would they find you, Joe? They would use the... Twitter handle? Yes, I guess that's what we call them. At to be stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Uh, Heather, if they wanted to find you, do you want them to? (laughs) (laughs) I have a Twitter. They'll find you on Twitter. (laughs) I have a Twitter. Do I tweet? Not very often. But it's H-E-A-T-H-C-Y-R at Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That was adorable. See how good I am at tweeting? (laughs) if you'd like to send us something longer like your james mcavoy fan fiction you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com and next week we are hopping across the pond once again but we're actually leaping into the world of literature and translation are we not joe uh maybe (laughs) we're looking at why we took the car a 2010 novel so I believe uh, this is a German book and movie adaptation. And this was for sure a fan request. It was. 
yeah, this was a specific request, and I'm really excited because I feel like it's been forever since we've done something that's not North American or British. Yeah, it has, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this will be fun. Find a copy of it. Mine was that cop that was in the library for me. Um, it was me too. Yeah, yeah. So you should be able to find a copy of uh, why we took the car. Mm-hmm. So, with our thanks to Heather for shepherding us through this discussion today. Thanks, Heather. Thank you for having me, you too. We're very grateful. And until next time, uh, you can find me on the page. And I will see you on the screen. <laughs>